Good morning. It's great to be with you all. I don't know about you, but um, the way the last two years have gone, it uh, just always feels like a victory, even when something just happens. So here we are. It's happening. Praise God. Uh, would you pray with me before we start? God, we give you this time. I uh, thank you for uh, all the time that's already been spent in uh, these chapters of Second Samuel, and I pray that you would help us now to continue to receive your word, to process it, to let it sink into our hearts, both during this time and during the discussions to follow. God, we look to you. Uh, we receive from you this, this nourishment for our souls uh, from you. We pray this through your son. Amen. On May 9th, 1994, Nelson Mandela was sworn in as the president of South Africa. Now, you probably know the story. Just a few years prior to that, he was actually in prison serving what was supposed to be a life sentence. Uh, this election in 1994 was the first truly democratic election that the country of South Africa had ever had. Uh, all the previous ones, most of the country, the vast majority of the population was not even allowed to vote. So on the day of his inauguration, uh, he gave a speech in Cape Town and he, he opened the speech this way. He said, today we are entering a new era for our country and its people. Today we celebrate not the victory of a party, but a victory for all the people of South Africa. Now those are the kind of things that politicians like to say all the time, but in Nelson Mandela's case it was actually true. This really was a turning point. A new era really was beginning. And so we realize that sometimes uh, in the rise and fall of leaders, sometimes something much bigger is happening. And in the text we're going to look at today in 2 Samuel, the author of this book is making that exact claim for David, that in the rise of David to the throne, something much bigger was happening than merely the uh, ascent of a new king. Here's, here's what I want to show you today in our time together. Uh, as David was establishing his kingdom, God was building his own. That's, that's what this uh, passage describes. We see David, like any king, uh, building his kingdom, establishing his reign, consolidating power, trying to organize things. But the author of 2 Samuel wants to make sure we don't miss the fact that in and through and around all of that normal activity, God is up to something through David. As David was establishing his kingdom, God, at the very same time, was building his own. So if you look at chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, you'll see in the first five verses the simple narration of a moment that we as, as readers have been waiting for for a long time. 
going all the way back to 1 Samuel 16, we have been waiting for David to take the throne. God singled him out through Samuel and said, this is the future king, this is the one who will replace Saul, this is the one I want. And it has been a long and arduous journey from that day until this day. But, but here we are, 2 Samuel 5, and David is finally taking the throne as the king of all the tribes of Israel. And what the, what the author does in the, the following few chapters that we're going to consider is he shows us four realities uh, of God's kingdom that begin to take shape in the reign of David. So before we jump into the text, I want to just say a few words about this idea of the kingdom of God. It's a, it's a phrase that we see a lot in the Gospels. Jesus talked about the kingdom a lot. Uh, in the Old Testament, the phrase itself uh, only shows up a handful of times, but the concept of the kingdom of God is pervasive throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy, a biblical scholar, gives this really helpful and simple definition of the kingdom of God. It is simply God's people in God's place, under God's rule. That, that's the idea. The kingdom of God is God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. And what you, what you begin to see, if you, if you take those categories into your reading of the Old Testament, you, you see that that is one of the central storylines of the whole narrative. Uh, you can think about God's entire project with Israel uh, really as a kingdom restoration project, that, the, that his rule over his people in the right place uh, was lost in Genesis chapter 3. That's what was destroyed. That's what was shattered, was our enjoyment as humans of the kingdom of God, of, of dwelling as God's people in his place under his good rule. We, we rejected that and everything fell apart. And starting, in a sense, in Genesis 12, God begins to put the pieces back together for our benefit, for our good and for his glory, but he begins to put the pieces back together of this kingdom, this, this rule over God's people in God's place. And so as we follow Israel, starting from Abraham and continuing on, that is one category that we want to keep in mind as we think about what's God doing with Israel? What's the point of all of this? Well, one way of describing it is to say that God is restoring his kingdom. He's gathering a people, bringing them to the place that he has for them so that he might rule over them for their good and for his glory. So coming back now to 2 Samuel, what, what these episodes in the reign of David show, uh, they show us that there are at least four aspects, four realities of God's kingdom that begin to take shape in the reign of David. So let's look at uh, each of these four. The first one is a city for the king. God provides a city 
for the king. So right away, verse 6 of chapter 5, the, the next thing that the author wants us to see is that David conquered Jerusalem. Look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. So from this point forward in in the uh, history of Israel, uh, God's people now have a capital. They've been in the land for centuries at this point, but now there's a, now there's a city that belongs to their king. There's a, a citadel, a refuge. There's a place you can go if you are an Israelite to uh, seek the king's face, to petition the king, to seek refuge within its walls. God provides a city for the king. And what we see as we follow the Bible from this point forward is that Jerusalem becomes more than just a place on a map. It really becomes uh, the center of the world for Israel. It becomes a place to pray for, to sing about. Later, it will become a place to weep over. It is the city of their great king. And starting at this point in the story, God provides it. God provides, through David, a city for the king. Second, God provides a victory over enemies. So there's a city for the king in verses 6 to 16 of chapter 5, and then in verses 17 to 25 of chapter 5, we see God providing victory over enemies. Look at verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. So if you've been looking at First and Second Samuel, you know that the Philistines have been the villains of this story. Maybe uh, second to King Saul at times. But the Philistines have harassed Israel. They have tempted Israel. And for stretches of time, they have literally occupied land that belonged to Israel. They have been a huge problem. Uh, Israel was promised this land. God brought them into it, and his intention for them is to dwell there securely, to be at peace. And we know from Judges, from 1 Samuel, and even 2 Samuel, that has not happened for very long, at least. And now, through David, God is pushing back the enemies of his people. Look at verse 19. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you Give them into my hand. And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And that's exactly what happens. Twice, in fact, in this passage. So, ever since the serpent slithered into the Garden of Eden, God's kingdom has had enemies. Uh, in the New Testament, John uh, summarizes three great categories uh, of God's enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 singles out death and says death itself is an enemy. It's the, the last enemy to be defeated. So this idea of enemies of God's people is not just some primitive artifact from the Old Testament, some uh, vestige of a more antagonistic time. This, this is a reality of the fallen world that as God uh, seeks to restore his rule over his people in their place, uh, enemies oppose and resist that very mission. Now, obviously, defeating the Philistines here is a far cry from defeating death or defeating Satan, but it's as if the conquest has begun. Now that David's on the throne, now that God's anointed uh, the man after God's own heart, now that he's reigning, now God is beginning to push back against the enemies that had harassed God's people and resisted the restoration of God's rule. So, now that David's on the throne, we see a city for the king, we see a victory over enemies, and then third, we see a dwelling place for the Lord. A dwelling place for the Lord. This is in chapter 6. Look at verse 1 of 2 Samuel 6. So David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So this is an incredible story. There's a few really interesting things that happen. Uh, Uzzah dies for uh, touching the ark, which was being carried in an improper way to begin with. And then you have this, this fight at the end between David and his wife, Michael, where she criticizes his undignified celebration of the entrance of the ark into Jerusalem. Uh, we're going to have to leave those interesting scenes aside because I just want to focus on what does it mean uh, for David to do this? What does it mean for David to take the ark which has been around since the days of Moses, and to bring it into this new capital city, Mount Zion, the city of David. Well, you have to remember, what was the ark for? This was not just a superstitious thing that Israel had come up with. This was a God-designed way for him to dwell with his people. The, the ark of the covenant mediated the very presence of God so that God could dwell among his people, which gets to the very heart of what the kingdom of God is about. It's about uh, bringing us home to the God for whom we were made, but the God whom we have rejected. As God undoes that fall, one of the central things he does is he gathers us to dwell with him. He's he says that back in Exodus 25, and that idea stretches all the way through the whole Bible, that God is seeking in his kindness and grace to make it possible for us to dwell with him, for him to dwell with us. And as is clear, even in this story, in the death of Uzzah, uh, 
it's not necessarily a safe thing to have God dwelling among people because we are sinful and he is righteous. We are uh, finite and common and he is holy and transcendent. So that's why you see in the book of Exodus all of these uh, structures and objects and processes put in place to mediate God's presence so that his holiness can dwell among the filth of sinful humans without incinerating them. And the focal point of that was the Ark of the Covenant. God's throne, God's footstool. And so what, what David is doing is he's bringing that into Jerusalem. And all the way back in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 12, 5, God had said that even though the Ark at that point was, was nomadic, it wandered around in a tent wherever the people went, God said, one day I'm going to pick a place. I'm going to pick a single place within the land for my name to dwell. And what God commanded them at that point in Deuteronomy 12 was, go to that place to worship me. Go to that place to offer sacrifices. So this isn't just a uh, power play by David to make everybody come to his city to worship God. This is fulfilling that prophecy through Moses that God would pick a place where he could be sought, a place where his presence could be experienced in a focused, unique way. God is selecting that place now for the first time through David. That place where God can be sought, where sacrifices will be offered, is Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is not only the city of the great king, it is also the city where God dwells with people. So first, God gives a city for the king. That's 5, 6 through 16. Second, God gives a victory over enemies. That's 5, 17 to 25. And then all of chapter 6 shows us God giving a dwelling place for himself among his people. And that brings us to the fourth reality of the kingdom of God that begins to take shape under David's reign. And that is a throne for the ages. This is chapter 7 now. God provides a throne for the ages. I won't read the whole chapter. It's easily one of the most significant chapters in the entire Bible. The, the backstory here is that David decides he wants to build God a house. He wants to build a temple in Jerusalem to house the ark, to be a permanent uh, successor to the tabernacle, uh, the, the tent that, that had previously housed the ark. And so he goes to Nathan, the, the prophet, and says, hey, I want to do this. And Nathan, probably just responding to what seemed wise and fitting and good, given David's character and God's purposes, said, yes, go do it. That's a great idea. But then Nathan has uh, a vision. The, the Lord brings his word to Nathan to bring to David, which is effectively says, wait, it is not for you, David, to build me a temple. That's coming. I, I will do that later. But in a sense, the answer comes back, wait a minute, no, don't build the temple. That's not what God has for David. But then God says something else through Nathan to David 
that will echo through the centuries, and that is that God is going to establish a permanent dynasty from David. Let's, let's read uh, the, the critical part of this. Uh, look at verse 11 of chapter 7, and I'm going to read uh, down to verse 17. So 7, verse 11 says, uh, from the time that I appointed judge, well, we'll skip that sentence. Okay, start in the middle of 11. And I will give you rest. This is God talking to David. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but... My steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. We'll stop there, and then I'll read 16 in a, in a moment. Uh, so there's, there's a near fulfillment here. There's a, there's a promise that clearly has to do with Solomon. Not named here, but we know it's going to be Solomon, one of the, the sons of David, who will uh, take his throne and build the temple of Yahweh. But what we also see is that the, the promise is so big that it, be, it becomes clear pretty early on that Solomon is not going to exhaust all that God meant by these words. That the promises are too big to find their complete fulfillment in Solomon. That there must be something more. And it, if there's any doubt, I think verse 16 makes it even more clear. Look at verse 16. This is to David. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So clearly this extends well beyond just the next king, King Solomon. God is saying that he is going to establish an eternal throne for David. And what this means is that all the, the great things that God has been doing in Israel, now uh, those things are linked up with what God is doing through David and his family. So you think about, again, the story. God calls Abraham. He sets apart this man and his family. That continues through Isaac and Jacob. Uh, in the days of Moses, that takes a huge leap forward as God constitutes this people as an actual nation. So God has been doing these mighty and great things through Israel, restoring his kingdom. What happens now is that the story of David is now linked up to that story. If you think of Israel's story as a thread and David's story as a thread, chapter 7 winds those threads together so that from this point forward, the two threads, David, Israel, they're, they're intertwined. They're connected. What God intends to do for Israel, he will now do through David, through David's dynasty, through the line of kings that will come from 
David. Uh, Fred Rogers, uh, of Mr. Rogers' fame, once said that uh, when he was a kid, his mom would tell him whenever something scary was on the news, she would say this, this line that has become famous now through him, which is, look for the helpers. So she would tell young Fred, look for the helpers. There's always someone helping in hard and difficult and scary situations. And there's something similar, I think, that the author of 2 Samuel is saying to his readers, which is, look for the line of David. Like, whatever else is going on, whatever uh, darkness descends on Israel, however terrible things get, uh, if you want to have any comfort, if you want to know where to aim your hope, look to David's house. Now, in certain eras of Israel's history, that was pretty simple. For, for centuries, uh, there was a, a direct uh, dynasty, a line of descendants actually reigning in Jerusalem. So there was somebody literally on the throne for many, many years, and, and this passage would indicate to a faithful Israelite in that time, uh, that's where your hope is. That's where God's promises lie, is with the house of David. Look to David. But then, that comes to an end. Jerusalem is conquered. The, the dynasty is cut off. Uh, the, the land is in ruins. And this promise of 2 Samuel 7, if it's going to be kept, means that even uh, centuries after David's dynasty has ceased to function in any political, observable mode, this promise would say to an Israelite, look to David's house. That's where hope will come from. And that is where Jesus came from. He was the son of David. And as you, as you follow Jesus in the Gospels, as you read the, the epistles that describe what Jesus did and the significance of it, what you, what you see is that Jesus takes these four realities that we can see in, in 2 Samuel 5 through 7, and he fills them up. He brings them to fruition in a way that would have shocked David and his contemporaries. He, he amplifies, he magnifies, he multiplies these four realities. Instead of just a city in the Middle East that we're hoping in, that we're looking to, the city of the great king, Jesus is bringing a new Jerusalem, a, a heavenly city that will come and in some way overtake this world and be uh, the capital of the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus achieves not just a victory over warring neighbors. Jesus uh, defeats the sin, the flesh, the world, the devil, death itself. Jesus defeats all of our enemies. He defeats the enemies underneath our enemies. Jesus in his incarnation uh, is a dwelling place of God among people. Jesus brings the presence of God fully to us so that we might enjoy God's presence. And Jesus sits on this throne uh, for the ages, not just for a lifetime, but after his resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father to reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. Jesus reigns 
today. And, and all we are waiting for is for that reign to reach its final culmination and consummation when he returns. So, what do we do with this? How, how should we respond? Uh, I think it's helpful to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites who would have heard this and read this when it was first written, hearing these stories for the first time. Uh, I think sometimes it's easy to, to read about David, and he's such a compelling person, that our minds can go straight to be like David. And that is certainly part of what we're supposed to learn. David does many things that are uh, held out as exemplary. Be like David, don't be like Saul. That, that is a legitimate response to many of these stories. Um, but I think there's a, a more fundamental response that the author was after, especially in these chapters. And it's something like this. The, the author wants us, if, if we're ancient Israelites hearing this for the first time, the author wants us to trust in God by setting our loyalty and our hope in the house of David. So God is the one who's ultimate. God is behind all of this. God is the one who is working. But this passage makes it crystal clear that that work is in and through and will continue to be in and through the house of David. And so the way that God's people from this point forward ought to express their trust in God is by setting their loyalty and their hope in the house of David, which we now know reached its culmination, its high point, in the person of Jesus Christ and in his death and resurrection. So with that in mind, how do we respond now? What, what does this say to, to us today? Uh, let me just give you two questions to think about before we uh, close this time. What kingdom are you seeking? And what king are you trusting in to bring that kingdom about? What kingdom are you seeking? And what king are you trusting in to bring that kingdom about? Uh, from the beginning, the people of God had, had options. Uh, they didn't have to submit to David for years. Uh, there was the option of Saul. Later, there would be uh, options of foreign gods, other kings, rival leaders. Then there would be the northern kings. Uh, there, there have always been uh, would-be rivals to the, the true king. And so it's always one aspect of following God to, to settle and then keep settling and keep deciding which kingdom do you belong to, which kingdom are you seeking and which king will you look to to bring that about? And if that, uh, if that sounds a little bit too political or abstract, what kingdom am I seeking? Think of it in these terms. What's your vision of the good life? Like what imagined future do you think will finally make you at peace, secure? What, what sense of of home are you longing for? Uh, what do you think 
will settle your anxieties? What, what will finally heal the sorrows for what's been lost and what's gone? Uh, these are all ways of, of getting at the way we look to a certain state of affairs to provide the security and the peace and the flourishing that only the kingdom of God can ultimately provide. Now, I'm not saying that those other things are inherently bad. Like if you are trying, uh, if you are seeking to establish, let's say, uh, a home in your own family that is full of peace and flourishing, that's a good goal. That's worth seeking, but it, it's not a good ultimate goal because it's, it's fleeting, it's temporary, it's imperfect. So the idea is that we seek these, these other aims, these good things in our lives, not as ultimate, but as secondary to the ultimate kingdom, the, the, the place that has our highest loyalty, which is God's kingdom in Christ, which has both a, a present reality. There is a present way that we can experience being God's people, living in God's world, under God's rule in Christ. And there's also a future element. There, there are aspects of that that are missing until Jesus comes back, the world is restored, death is undone, sin is finished. That is the, the final destination of God's unfolding kingdom. And as followers of Jesus, that's what we live for. That's what can bear the weight of our ultimate hope. The hope that, that can, can sit underneath all the other little expectations and little desires that we pursue in life. So what kingdom are you seeking? And second, which king? Which king are you trusting in to get you there? And in one sense, there are as many would-be kings as there are kingdoms. But I think in another sense, we're all tempted. Uh, whatever kingdom we're seeking, we're all tempted to make ourselves king. To, to, to act and feel and think as if it is all riding on me. And, and I mean, you look around at your life and you have so much responsibility. There are so many things riding on you, uh, financially, family-wise, relatives, parents, kids, grandkids. Like, there are a lot of things that we wake up and worry about and think about because if we don't do it, it's not going to get done. But to have Jesus as king means that all of your effort, all of your diligence to take care of your responsibilities can take place uh, against the backdrop uh, resting on the foundation of his reign so that on a good day, on a bad day, you can rest and take a deep breath and go to sleep knowing that Jesus is king. And because Jesus is king, uh, you and I, we don't have to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We, we marvel at the ways you took uh, realities that appeared in seed form in David's time. A city, a victory, a dwelling place, a throne. And you have magnified these realities uh, to the point that they will one day remake the whole world. 
and restore all those who trust in you. So we rejoice in that. We want to recalibrate our hope on you. Jesus, we get so worked up over much smaller aims. Uh, We spend ourselves uh, with worry and striving in pursuit of kingdoms that just pale in comparison to what you are bringing and what you will bring. And so I ask for myself and for my sisters in Christ here that you would strengthen our faith and our loyalty and our confidence in your kingdom. That the the coming restoration of all things would be vivid to our hearts. That it would actually reshuffle our priorities. That it would actually calm our anxieties. That it would actually motivate our efforts. That it would actually uh, put our secondary goals and aims in their proper place. So that we can pursue them not with anxiety and fear and dread, but with joy and freedom. Because you are on the throne and your kingdom will be established. May this story, uh, this, this moment from the early years of your restored kingdom, may it build our faith. May it give us confidence that just as the Father did it then in David's life and reign, so he will do it again through you, Jesus, our great King. Please help us to trust you and be loyal to you and to set our hope firmly on you. Amen.